All right. Let's see if we've got a theme song here. I'm not gonna say it. Somebody should. Let's talk about two time. Let's talk about bum one, yeah. Asking the questions that nobody could. Like where are the bone dogs and are they in harmony? Everybody. Welcome to an episode of this show that I host and you listen to. I'm Pete. Uh, you are you. Uh, you're, you're one of five people who listen to this show, so I guess I, I could have taken a guess there, but I didn't. Well, today we've got a thing. I came across a category on Wikipedia, lists of worsts, and... Um, it's, it's a little bit of a treasure trove, and it was hard to know where to start. Uh, we do, I did find, so I came across this, I was looking at a Goodreads review of what appears to be quite a terrible book, and uh, someone had said, oh, it was on Wikipedia's list of the worst books, like ever, or something like that. And um, I, I looked up that book, and that list is gone. That list doesn't exist anymore, but um, you could find it on uh, uh, Wayback Machine. And I'm proud to say that on, on uh, the Patreon episode for this month, the bonus episode, we're going to be going through a little book that I've gained access to called Worlds of Power Metal Gear. Uh, this is a novelization of the 1987 video game Metal Gear. And uh, a guy from Den of Geek described it thusly. This must have been a secret plot by Nintendo of America to destroy any interest in reading which may have lurked within loyal players. And this book is so bad it might cause your brain to forget how to read in self-defense. <laughs> um, I, went, I went through just a small part of it and saw, you know, there was it was kind of explaining the plot. And just immediately, the contortions the book goes through in order to explain why you are like this, I don't know, Marine, Special Forces guy, and you start the game with just a compass and no other equipment. And it's like the the backflips it does to try and explain that in a book as opposed... In a video game, it's kind of like, well, you know, you can you kind of know why you start with no shit. It's because, like, I mean, because it's a game. So you got to find the stuff that's part of the game. But in the context of a uh, a book, it's a little more complicated. <laughs> but they're just like, I mean, if you had any stuff, it would slow you down. And it's like, oh, that makes sense. Maybe I should just go in completely naked as well. That would probably be smart. Um, I decided to go through there are several lists and several that looked interesting but today we went with uh some lists of badly received tv shows just because i thought they would be fun and i pulled out like maybe 10 that i i thought would be good so let's start with 1600 pen an american television sitcom about a dysfunctional family living in the white house uh, the series stars Jenna Elfman. All right, that's kind of surprising. Bill Pullman as the president, who you may remember as the president from Independence Day. So I guess maybe this is a uh, Independence Day spinoff. Um, there were also a bunch of other people. So basically, it's a, a, it's a family sitcom taking place in uh, the White House. <laughs> Uh, um, I just, I liked, okay, here's the pilot, the plot. After a fire, Skip Gilcrest, uh, that's the son, returns from college to live with his parents and the rest of the family, uh, in the White House. Rebecca Becca Gilchrist, the president's oldest child, frantically checking the results of an at-home pregnancy test, discovers that it is positive and she is now pregnant. 
Around the same time, Skips and Becca's father, the president, is working on a trade agreement. <laughs> I like that um, it's like, oh, I'm returning from college to live with the fam who lives in the White House. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. But also, presidential daughter getting pregnant. That's good stuff. Like, that needs to happen in real life. That's a... You know, I'm just, I'm very curious what kind of scandal that would, that would be. <laughs> uh, let's see. Skip episode six. Skip thinks the White House tour is too boring and is not showing the White House as the wonderful place he thinks it is. So he hijacks a tour group and starts his own. <laughs> and then let's go to the next one. Unable to decide on whom to appoint to the empty seat on the Supreme Court, President Gilchrist decides to take an untimely family trip to his ranch to clear his head and avoid choosing. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh yeah, then I guess we have, we have like kind of normalish stuff in this sort of, uh, I don't know, weird, weird context. Episode 13, the president makes controversial remarks about marriage, causing the public to question if the first couple are really married. They plan to remarry in a big ceremony where unexpected events occur. Becca goes into labor and gives birth to her and Marshall's baby. Okay, so this isn't just some baby where they don't know the dad or something. I guess that that, that makes it a lot less exciting. Uh, I was kind of hoping it was like, you know, they're in the White House and it's like somehow, somehow she got pregnant. Dum, bum, um, but yeah, it's weird because it just seems like maybe, maybe this came about because they were like, I mean, there must be a ton of White House sets sitting around, right? That they're like, ah, we need it for, we need a White House for this or we need the uh, Oval Office for that. Pentagon. I mean that's got to be that's got to be pretty easy to find in LA, right? So if, you, <laughs> if they're like, well, if we kind of do the uh, Star Trek thing and make use of what we got, you know, if you're ever wondering why in Star Trek they occasionally do an episode where it's like, why are we in gangster times all of a sudden? Well, cuz that's what we had laying around. All right. Uh next up <laughs> I tried, uh, by the way, for the most part, I tried to skip anything that I was like, I think everybody's heard of this. You know what I mean? I tried to do ones that I didn't know about with one big exception, but um, there's one called Come Back, Mrs. Noah. It's a British sitcom. Uh, let's see. It's not a success. Here's the plot. In 2050, British housewife Gertrude Noah wins a cookery competition and is awarded a tour of Britannia 7, the UK's new space exploration vehicle. The craft is accidentally sent blasting off into space with a crew consisting only of Mrs. Noah, proton physicist Carstairs, literally C-A-R-S-T-A-I-R-S, Carstairs, neutron physicist Fanshaw, light bulb changer Gar Stang, and BBC reporter Clive Cuncliffe. The series then centers on efforts to bring them back to Earth. The program Far and Wide, a parody of Nationwide, features frequent updates read by Gordon Kay. These reports present a reality in which Britain is the most successful nation on Earth, providing aid to countries like Germany and the United States. It's funny that they include that in the plot. That seems like a... it's. Funny because it's like a subplot of a show that's mostly forgotten. And they're like, but you know what's really funny about this? Other than we just blast a lady off into space. It's, uh, what's really funny about this is that Britain would think in 2050 it was like the most prosperous country. Uh, let's see. Episode 1, as part of her prize for winning, winning Modern Housewife magazine's cookery competition, Mrs. Noah visits the Pontefract International Space Complex, P-I-S-C. Is that like a pissy? Is that a funny thing? To tour the flight deck of Britain's $700 billion space station, 
She witnesses unproductive tea-making technology, tries on a pleasure hat. I wonder if that's like a, a hat that provides you pleasure or it's like this is a hat. I'm going to start calling uh, just like a baseball hat I have. I'm going to be like, this is my pleasure hat. I put this on when I'm ready to be pleased. I know that sounds like blowjob talk or something, but I'm talking about probably eating pizza. So I guess it also known as pizza eating hat. And is on the verge of testing the dream, dream stimulation machine when the shuttle is accidentally launched into space, providing her a crash course in weightlessness. Weightlessness dutifully linked to its Wikipedia article. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, six, episode six, the final episode. We'll just skip down there. The crew decides to take advantage of the facilities, so they play around a virtual golf. Unfortunately, their game is spoiled by a freak rainstorm that short-circuits the machinery. Later, everyone is attired in silver spacesuits and taught how to eject from the spacecraft when it enters the Earth's atmosphere. But back at Mission Control, Mr. Hawk is so distracted by Ms. Dare that he pushes the wrong button, catapulting the vehicle to the other outer limits of the solar system. <laughs> so, why? <laughs> I mean... Okay, sometimes these shows, I'm like, you know, I can, it's like Mystery Science Theater 3000, right? And you're like, well, listen, this, this show has a premise that's explained in the intro, which is like, this guy is stuck in a space station and forced to watch bad movies. So he made robot companions to watch them with. Um, and then, you know... Uh, that makes it more tolerable. If they make fun of the movies, it's more tolerable. And you're like, all right, got it. And you don't really have to buy anything further than that initial premise. And I think that's the thing about a show like this is you're like, well, if you just want to have people out in space doing wacky shit, that's cool. Like, I think, I think whether it's fantasy, sci-fi, or horror... I can buy a pretty wild premise so long as, like, that's the only thing that I really have to buy. Like, the wilder the premise is, I think the more normal everything else should be. So, in other words, like, uh, Back to the Future works because it's like, okay, time travel is a thing. Everything else in that movie, especially the first one, is extremely normal, right? It's like, he time travels, but he goes to the past... So we know what the past looks like, or, you know, we have an idea. And uh, we don't have to be concerned about, you know what I mean? Like, we're not also asked to buy, like, oh, my God, this is like this, and this is also different, and this is crazy. And this show is, like, uh, they're kind of trying to continue rescuing these people. And then they're like, okay, so there's a, a button in Mission Control that some guy could just lean against that is going to blast this into deeper space. And there was no reason, first of all, they had this button. Second of all, no one was like, you know, after this first incident in which someone was blasted into inner space, closest space, uh, we were like, you know what? I don't see any reason to, <laughs> to alter that. And here's, the, here's what's dumb. You start looking at something like this and you analyze it. And you're like, I mean, clearly I'm overthinking something that someone else didn't think about at all. But it's like, why? And it's like he's distracted by a babe. He's that distracted by a babe. That he's like, I accidentally pushed the button that does this thing. I mean, like, here's here's the way you do it. You, you make everyone who works at the space place stupid, right? Because you're like, okay, it's the future. And so, like, now working at uh, NASA or whatever is like working for a trucking company. It's, like, not exactly where you send your best and brightest all the time. Okay? You don't have to be a genius to go into space anymore. So they, they make dunderheaded mistakes, like accidentally launching a ship into space. Or, you know, they have this uh, launch the ship into deep space button. And they're like, well, we had a guy come do the wiring for it. 
and he accidentally wired it to the light switch, which is right next to the, it's on the same panel as the switch for this room. So every day when we come and turn the lights on, it's like, ooh, I almost launched that into deep space. <laughs> and then eventually someone does. And they're like, oh, there's not enough light in here. And then, no, and then they launch it into deep space. Okay, here's a show called The Hathaways, which is a fucking 26-episode sitcom, by the way. 26 episodes of this. Uh, it's from the early 60s. Who And it stars Peggy Cass and Jack Weston as suburban Los Angeles, quote, parents to a trio of performing chimpanzees. Uh, a, Jack Weston portrayed Walter Hathaway, a flabby real estate agent. And Peggy Cass is his zany bride, Eleanor, mother and booking agent to the marquee chimps named Candy, Charlie, and Enoch. The chimps had earlier appeared in the... Ed, Ed Sullivan show and a Jack Benny and other shit. <laughs> so it seems like what they were doing is like, you know what people like? Chimps. So let's get some chimps on a show. But then it's like, uh, you know, here's some episode descriptions. Walter sells the house next door to a client who can't stand pets, which I guess is a problem because they have chimps. But I would go I would go further into say I would have a bigger problem with my neighbors having three chimps than having like dogs. And I'm like, I don't really like dogs. Um chimps seem like more of a potential issue. First of all, because they could tear your face off. Um You know, Eleanor buys a hat is the second episode. Eleanor buys a hat and ends up in jail when Charlie po pockets her po parking ticket. Okay, see, that's something. That's one of the chimps, right, Charlie? Um, and it's like, okay, Charlie is a chimp. He doesn't know what a fucking parking ticket is, so he just shoved it in his pocket. And then uh, she goes to jail for an... Oh, Charlie! See, officer, you have to understand. I think a chimp took that parking ticket. All right. All right, you old rummy, <laughs> get in the cell. <laughs> uh, Walter and Freddy start a synthetic soda pop business in episode three. <laughs> okay. Uh, episode four is Eleanor is stricken with remorse for having left the chimps home with a sitter while she and Walter sojourn at Palm Springs. <laughs> now this one I like. Walter is requested at the local office of the IRS to discuss deductions claimed on his, quote, dependents. There you go. Now we're talking. That's how you use uh, Chimp Family Robinson or whatever. That's how you make an episode of that show. <laughs> You're like, I mean, they are dependent on me. And they're basically like children. Hmm. I don't know. One could certainly make the argument that it's like, well, they're animals, they belong in the jungle, and it's like, I mean, but, you know, plenty of children come along in the world by, by choice. People made an effort to have those kids. They still get a tax deduction, right? Um, this is the one that I was like, I'm guessing most people have heard of this. Uh, Heil Honey, I'm Home, a British sitcom, uh, centers on Adolf Hitler and Ava Braun, who live next door to a Jewish couple, Arnie and Rosa Goldenstein. The show spoofs elements of mid-20th century American sitcoms and is driven by Hitler's inability to get along with his neighbors. It caused controversy. <laughs> no shit. When broadcast and has been called perhaps the world's most tasteless situation comedy. Yep, yep. Uh, the first episode opens... <laughs> opens with a caption card explaining Heil Honey's fictional backstory, which supposes the rediscovered lost tapes of an abandoned, never-aired sitcom created by Brandon Thalberg Jr. Ironically, the real show would suffer this same fate as only one episode ever aired of its recorded eight episodes. In 1938, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun live in Berlin next to a Jewish couple, Arnie and Rosa Goldenstein. Goldstein isn't enough, you had to do Goldenstein. Hitler and Braun have little in common with their historical counterparts, acting more like a stock sitcom husband and wife. Hitler, for example, 
appears in a golfing sweater and cravat, as well as military garb. Um, that's confusing. So, well, let's let's see. The Goldensteins are similarly hackneyed characters, with Arnie making frequent disparaging comments about his mother-in-law and mockingly performing a Roman salute at one point. The show is a spoof, not of the Third Reich, but of the sort of sitcoms produced in the United States between the 50s and 70s that would embrace any idea no matter how stupid. In this spirit, the title, plot, and dialogue are deliberately vapid and corny, and characters are applauded whenever they arrive on set. Patterned after I Love Lucy, the actors have New York accents. <laughs> I mean, it's confusing because it's like a title card explains. And I was like, is this like an alternate dimension Hitler? Like, is World War II happening? And Because it, it sounds kind of like maybe World War II is happening. I do get it. I do get the joke of the premise, though, which is like, you know, it's like a buddy cop thing, right? Where it's like, we got to pair you up with whoever would be the worst person to pair you up with. And then we have a movie, right? And that's kind of what this is. It's just like, what would be the worst? Who would be the worst neighbor we could come up with? And it was, it may have even been like Hitler. I mean, regardless. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, let's make his neighbors Jewish. And there you go. We're, we're off to the races. Uh, let's see. The plot of the first episode centers on the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, coming to the Hitler house. Not wanting the Goldensteins to interrupt the visit, Hitler instructs Braun to keep the news from Rosa, which she fails to do. Rosa duly invites herself over with hopes of matching Chamberlain with her dull niece, Ruth. <laughs> Hitler gets the Goldensteins drunk in an attempt to make them leave before Chamberlain arrives, but they stay. Arnie and Eva and Ava... Eva? End up leading the visiting prime minister in a conga line around the living room while Hitler hides the peace of our time agreement in the icebox. <laughs> Only the pilot was ever screened, although 11 episodes were planned and 8 were recorded, in which a story arc involved Hitler's secretive attempts to kill the Golden States. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's funny that, you know, people were like, I mean... I, I think I understand. Oh, by the way, this came out in much later than I thought it did. 1990. Um, is this like a wasn't ready thing? Or is this like a, uh, you know, um, boy. I think that here's the thing. I think it's like this sounds to me like an SNL sketch stretched into potentially a full series sitcom. And that's, that's where it fails, right? You could do this as a sketch because you could be like, I don't know, the sketch could be like they're filming this sitcom and they're like, are you sure? And, you know, everybody's like, listen, this is the formula. You pair somebody up with the least likely. Who's the worst person? You know what I mean? They could explain it. And then that way, as you're watching it, you're like, okay, so they know what they're doing is terrible. <laughs> But I I guess I didn't expect it kind of defies its own premise a little because it sounds like, you know, the plot turns into Hitler trying to kill his Jewish neighbors, which does kind of violate the uh, the idea, you know, because the idea, right, was like, OK, so the way this works is uh, the Hitlers live next to this Jewish couple and then basically have typical sitcom interactions. But then they're like. Okay, this is a... You could do a different sitcom this way, right? If it wasn't Hitler and the Goldensteins, and you were like, it's a sitcom, except the na the obnoxious neighbors, the, uh, you know, protagonist neighbor is trying to murder them because they're so fucking annoying. You'd be like, I think you could get away with that. I think that would be dark, but also people would be like, I don't know, I think a certain kind of viewer... And then also, I think that that gives you a way to do it while maintaining the joke, right? Because you're like, well, the joke of this is, you know, these sitcom neighbors are so fucking annoying. Uh, you know, what would somebody really do? And then it's like, OK, I get it. Like, uh, take this to its logical conclusion and then a little further and they're trying to kill the neighbor. It works. 
But anyway, you know, we could we could talk for a long time, I think, about why Heil Honey I'm Home is not going to work. <laughs> we probably don't need to. All right, here's a, a TV series called Rob, stylized as Rob in italics with an exclamation point upside down before and a right side up after. Uh, is an American sitcom television series uh, starring Rob Schneider. Uh, the series follows Rob Schneider, a former lifelong bachelor and landscape architect with OCD, who marries a tight-knit Mexican-American family and attempts to be closer to them, often ending in disastrous results despite his good intentions. Uh, I think what's amazing about this, part one, is that this was in 2012. <laughs> Um, in the pilot, Rob meets his new wife's Mexican family and his first day with them is a fiasco. Okay, that's fine. Um, you know, but really why I wanted to bring this up is that, uh, this was 2012 and then in 2015, there was a show called Real Rob, which was a sitcom that premiered in late 2015. So we did a season of Rob. Now we have real Rob. Um, by the way, stylized on screen, real Rob with the A upside down. And uh, uh, Rob Schneider plays himself and Patricia Schneider as herself, Rob's wife, who is of Mexican descent and younger than he is. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Also, Miranda Scarlet Snyder as herself, introduced in the series as the 11-month-old daughter of Rob and Patricia. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see if the first episode has anything extra in here, if it's got a little more to it. Rob finds that his assistant Jamie is incompetent and considers firing him, but he discovers that his stalker might be a good replacement. After being rejected for installing a stripper pole... Rob's wife, Patricia, wants to start a business that involves male dancers after being rejected. Uh, in the second episode, which is called the penis episode, part one, Patricia wants Rob to have a vasectomy and signs him up for a consultation. Rob meets up with former SNL colleague Norm MacDonald and what the procedure is like. When he sees that Jamie is stoned, he takes him to the clinic where he has Jamie go through the operation. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so <laughs> the second episode is he's supposed to have a vasectomy, doesn't, and puts his assistant in the operation room. So he gives his assistant a vasectomy. The penis episode part two. After turning down a commercial for a prostate enhancement, Rob makes a cash deal to endorse a bubble tea to be marketed in China and Taiwan. However, the tea turns out to be a Viagra-like supplement, and his face is plastered on a Hollywood billboard. Um, <laughs> there's that's it. There's no there's no fallout for like. <laughs> oh my God! Okay, episode five. Patricia tells Rob that he is so out of shape, even gay guys would not hit on him. Can you believe that? Even the gays, even the gays the most desperate to get in Rob Schneider's pants, wouldn't hit on him. That's how out of shape he is. To remedy this, he asks Jamie about his sex appeal to guys and then joins Udo in working out at the Hollywood gym where he tries to flirt with guys. Upon learning that the venue for Miranda's first birthday party does not serve organic pizza, Rob insists on hosting the party himself, but runs into trouble when he is unable to make a cake and forgets to hire the mascot. What? Was this written by someone from America? What is the mascot? The mascot of the birthday? Also, or what is organic pizza? Like organic ingredients pizza? Learning that the venue for Miranda's first... This must be like a Chuck E. Cheese type of thing, right? That could only be it. Uh, Patricia has Rob get rid of his stuff, which includes an alleged autographed Beatles album, an issue of Playboy, and sports memorabilia. He must also find a Mexican spiritualist to cleanse their house of bad spirits. 
Rob consults George Lopez, who at first is insulted he even knows his number, but recommends a shaman that will do the ritual. When the shaman mentions he needs marijuana in order to do the cleansing, Rob has to attain a medical marijuana license. Uh, Rob also tries to get Jamie to buy back his My Sharona 45 RPM single at the garage sale. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, this is great. I, I like it's George Lopez, who at first is insulted he even knows his number. So... George Lopez in the show is like, I mean, there must be some self-awareness in this show if George Lopez is like, why do you even have my phone number? I don't understand. This went on for two seasons. Uh, Rob is in training for a martial arts picture. That actually happened. What was that movie? Big Stan? Where he learns to just beat the shit out of everybody in prison. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, Rob Schneider is a good example of one of those guys that you're just like, you got two big bites at the apple there, I guess. All right. This is called The Trouble with Larry. And there's really not a whole lot listed in the uh, whatever. But uh, the premise is gold. Larry returns home a decade after he was dragged off by baboons on his honeymoon. <laughs> so Larry was on his honeymoon, <laughs> got dragged off by baboons. His wife, Sally, presumed he was dead and is now married to another man, has a nine-year-old daughter. And uh, Larry falls in love with his former sister-in-law, Gabriella, who hates him. So Larry returns after being assumed dead for 10 years because he was dragged off by baboons on his honeymoon. Like, what happened? It, again, this is a great example where I'm like, I mean, okay, you have a sitcom and it's like, well, the premise is this guy was married and on his honeymoon he got dragged off. or he, he's, he's presumed dead for 10 years. And then he's back. Um... To some extent, I understand what's going on here. Because, you know, you could do something obvious, right? Like, it's like, oh, he was in the Persian Gulf and missing in action. But that doesn't really work. Because he, <laughs> he has to disappear in a buffoonish way, right? Because otherwise, you kind of feel bad for him. And it's not funny. And so then you may also have feelings about the wife. Because it's like, well, she has a nine-year-old daughter. And uh, the guy's been missing for ten years. So... At best, she married this guy. He was dragged off to his demise. And not only did she give up looking for him, uh, assumed he was dead, and presumably hold a funeral and stuff, but she was schmanging another guy who she would marry within three months. There's a three-month turnaround. That's a pretty fast turnaround. Now, you can kind of do it, be if you if you have him dragged off by baboons into the into the forest and I guess imprisoned in a Planet of the Apes situation, but the problem I think comes in that like okay so after that, you know, um, Larry is exposed when he tries to be a robot for Lindsay's science project, but his knowledge of the jungle helps expose the science fair winner as another fake. <laughs> Okay, I actually kind of like that because it's like, this is what I'm saying. Episode two, Lindsay's bike is stolen and Larry hits the streets trying to find the bike. You cannot go from dragged off by baboons for 10 years to trying to find a missing bike. You're like, that's such a like a letdown. That's such a slump. But uh, Larry pretending to be a robot, assumed, assumedly dressing up in a robot suit. Pretty good. But then also, you know, the science fair winner does something about the jungle that Larry knows to be not true. And so then he has to bring up, like, I spent 10 years in the jungle thanks to being captured by baboons. <laughs> but put that aside. I have important things to say about this supposed science fair 
the last episode, by the way, is just called Pinata Full of Bones. <laughs> Who knows what that is? Now, these are a couple uh, other shows. There are some what I will call nonfiction shows. Uh, this is one called Mini Pops from the UK. Uh, designed primarily for younger viewers, it consisted of music performances on a brightly colored set featuring preteen children singing then-contemporary pop music hits and older classics. Okay. The children were usually made to look like the original performers, including clothing and makeup. Controversy over the children singing songs that often contained a subtext of adult content in adult costumes and makeup led to the show's cancellation after one series. <laughs> oh my god. This is, I think that's what's so great about this, right? Because you're like, yeah, I mean, this isn't a, ter I mean, it's a terrible idea. But, you know, Kids Bop seems to make it work, so whatever. But you're like, I mean, I think if you're going to do certain pop songs, you either have to, like, way tone down or change the lyrics, or eh, maybe just skip it. You know what I mean? Or have the costumes be different. You got to do something. Because, there, you know, there's something very distasteful about, like, a seven-year-old singing a song that's even mildly sexual. <laughs> like... And when I say there's something distasteful about it, it's one of the more distasteful things that you could conceive. <laughs> Here's Manimal. Uh, Manimal premiered as a night. No one cares about this. The series featured the story of Jonathan Chase, a shapeshifter who could turn himself into any animal he chose and use this ability to fight crime. Only two people were aware of Jonathan's secret, his friend Ty Earl and police detective Brooke McKenzie. Jonathan and Ty would assist Brooke with a case she was working on, with Jonathan transforming himself into an animal when it became useful. Of course. I like when when they try to do this. It's always a hilarious failure. When they try to like have, they're like, let's take a sort of a fantasy premise. And put it into reality that never works. It never works. I don't know why. Probably because it's like they take it so seriously. It's not It's not played for comedy. While Jonathan had the ability to change himself into anim any animal, he would always transform into a hawk and a black panther in nearly every episode. In some episodes, he would transform into a third animal, such as a horse, dolphin, bear, or bull with the transformation taking place off-screen, though once he was shown becoming a snake. In one episode, he was shown to be able to assume the aspect of various animals simultaneously rather than adopt their forms, such as the agility and speed of a panther or the suppleness and fast strikes of a snake. <laughs> Give me the suppleness of a snake. <laughs> the transformation sequences were designed and created by the Academy Award-winning special effects artist Dan Winston. Well, that's pretty cool. But, um, yeah, so I can tell you how this goes, right? You get Stan Winston, you're like, we need a transformation into an animal. And he's like, all right, what animal? And they're like, well, different animals all the time. And he's like, mm, I'll give you a hawk and a panther. And then, you know, I'll give you like five other ones. But, and so then they're like, well, here's what we need to do. We can't blow our wad on the first episode and then rerun all the transformations so we got to have one new transformation per episode. Let's space these out a little bit. And then it's like, well, what what animals can we get? And you're like, all right, bear, that's pretty impressive. Dolphin, you're like, all right. I mean, you know, that's probably not too hard to come across at the time. And then they're like, mm, horse and a bull. And you're like, ah, okay, fine. I like to, there's like a thing on here in the overview it's like an aspect that added to the show's camp factor was that, you know, he was always dressed in a suit and then he would be an animal and would be naked, but then would transform back into a guy and his suit was back in place. I always thought this was like a weird nitpick people had, like about the Hulk. They're like, why are his pants, you know, he's got enough pants and it's like, yeah, because you can't just have his penis like flapping around when he's hulked out, Okay. Obviously, that's not going to happen, so just deal with it. Okay, just accept it. This is the this is not the stupidest thing about the show Manimal. 
obviously. So, like, uh, here's the pilot. When a group of thieves devise a plan to hijack a shipment of nerve gas, Detective Brooke McKenzie must stop them. She teams up with Dr. Jonathan Chase, a man that knows the secrets that divide man and animal and who is trained in an African technique that allows him to transform into different animals. Sure. You know what? Sure. Like, why not, right? I just like, I like that they're like a secret African technique. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And they're like, this one detective really takes on a lot of animal-related cases, huh? Uh, here's one called Eaten Alive. Eaten Alive is an American nature documentary special which aired on Discovery Channel on December 7th, 2014. We always look for the moments, don't we, where these channels like Discovery or the Learning Channel turned into, like, I eat chalk. Uh, maybe this is this. The special focused on an expedition by wildlife author and entertainer Paul Rosalie to locate a green anaconda named Chumana, which he believed to be the world's longest, in a remote location of the Amazon rainforest in Peru. The special was purportedly to feature Rosalie being eaten by an anaconda, protected by a suit designed specifically <laughs> for this purpose. He attempted to feed himself to an anaconda, and the snake did attack, but did not swallow Rosalie, as the title of the special implied. The stunt itself was called off due to <laughs> safety concerns. <laughs> Though Rosalie stated the special was intended to draw attention to wildlife conservation and the destruction of the Amazon, okay... The special was condemned prior to its premiere by critics and the animal rights group PETA as an inhumane publicity stunt oriented towards shock value, resulting in calls for Discovery Channel to pull the special. I like how he's like, this is, this is for conservation. I'm going to get in this suit and get eaten. <laughs> um... Yeah, okay. I've seen firsthand how the Amazon rainforest is being destroyed. It is so rampant that we may be the last generation with the opportunity to save it. People need to wake up to what's going on. What better way is there to shock people than to put my life on the line with the largest snake on the planet, the green anaconda? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, in some ways. <laughs> I mean... This is, you know, this is where me and PETA are a little bit like, eh, you know, because it's like they're saying it's an example of animal cruelty. Uh, PETA objected to the use of an animal for entertainment, which I'm like, well, all right, you know, and went on to say that making this snake use up energy by swallowing this fool and then pop. And then possibly regurgitating him would have left the poor animal exhausted and deprived of the energy that he or she needs. Shame on this pseudo wildlife expert for tormenting this animal and shame on the Discovery Channel for giving him the incentive to do so. I mean, I, I'm not a snake expert, but I think a snake taking the energy to try and eat something and then not eating it was probably okay. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> Eaten alive. <laughs> I do like that they just went out uh, using up energy by swallowing this fool. <laughs> As if it's like, we all know the caloric density of fools is woefully inadequate. <laughs> Eaten Alive focused primarily on Rosalie's expedition to the floating forest, a remote area of the Amazon rainforest, to search for and capture a large green anaconda named Chumana, which he believed was longer than 24 feet, the length of the world's longest known anaconda. His eventual goal was to be eaten by the snake in an effort to promote wildlife conservation. They were unable to find Chumana, but he continued with his goal of being eaten by an anaconda. Rosalie was supplied with a captive 20-foot anaconda for use in the stunt. And he equipped himself with a specially designed protective suit, which was doused in pig blood as bait. <laughs> Jesus. As it affected his range of motion, Rosalie removed some of the padding from his suit that protected his arms. Oh, that seems smart. Uh, while the <laughs> 
man, I can't move around in the suit. Yeah, I think that's kind of the idea. I think that the idea is the snake is going to be trying to move you around in ways you're not supposed to. While the snake would constrict him and attempt to bite his head, Rosalie halted the stunt after an hour, showing concern that the anaconda's wrap would break his arm. No shit. No shit. In regards to the outcome, Rosalie explained that the anaconda, quote, got my arm into a position where her force was fully on my exposed arm. I started to feel the blood drain out of my hand, and I felt the bone flex. And when I got to the point where I felt like I was going to snap, I had to tap out. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Oh, oh man, that's amazing. <laughs> what a fucking idiot. <laughs> I started being eaten by the snake and then was like, you know what? <laughs> oh, man. Turns out, turns out this is horribly painful. I didn't want, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> When it came right down to it, it turned out... I mean, what was his plan? He was going to be swallowed by this snake? And then what? Uh, <laughs> okay. Here's a show called Puchinski, a 1990 unsold television pilot. The story... <laughs> the story follows Chicago police detective Stanley Puchinski, played by Peter Boyle. Oh, the lovely and talented Peter Boyle. That's great. Whose spirit is transferred into a flatulent English bulldog after he is killed in the line of duty. The canine detective then returns to solving crimes. <laughs> NBC decided not to pick up the series, but subsequently did air the pilot on July 9th, 1990, because why the fuck not? In recent years, the show's premise has been recognized as one of the most bizarre in television history. Uh, Puchinski. Uh, you know, first of all, great that his his name before you know this happened is Puchinski, but all, spelled like Puchinski. <laughs> but also, one of the most bizarre premises. Like, why? Also, flatulent. This is again a case of Wikipedia including details that I do find enriching. But I'm just... <laughs> well, it's important that he be gassy. You know what the kids like is a gassy dog. <laughs> just have like a regular dog. <laughs> um, all right. Who wants to marry a multimillionaire? An American reality television special in which 50 women competed in a beauty, beauty pageant style contest to marry a, a wealthy man whom they had never met with the wedding being performed at the end of the program. The show was controversial with both the Feminist National Organization for Women and the Conservative Media Research Center condemning it. Following the broadcast, it was alleged that the supposed multimillionaire Rick Rockwell had embellished claims about his professional and financial success, and it was subsequently found that he had been subject of a restraining order from a previous partner, which had not been discovered by Fox during a background check. The contest winner expressed regret for taking in part in the program, and her marriage was annulled. <laughs> uh, okay, so it turned out, it turned out, uh, shortly after the program, questions were raised as to whether Rockwell was actually a multimillionaire. Fox stated that Rockwell had $750,000 in liquid assets and a net worth of slightly more than $2 million. However, Rockwell's ordinary-looking home, which had a discarded toilet in the backyard, did not burnish his image. Several other claims were called into question. For instance, Rockwell claimed to have given up his career as a comedian in 1990 in order to become a motivational speaker. However, he'd performed at a comedy club as late as 1998, and several organizations where he claimed to have spoken said they'd never hired him. The smoking gun discovered that one of Rockwell's former girlfriends had a restraining order. This is all in the same paragraph. This is okay. First thing on here is, hey, he said he gave up stand up, but he was doing stand up like eight years later. He may have still been doing stand up. 
Also, he may have beaten his girlfriend. Secondly, he may have beaten his girlfriend. <laughs> but I like that they're like, well, multimillionaire. And they're like, I mean, technically, he's got a net worth of slightly more than $2 million. Which, don't get me wrong. I would be living a pretty different life if I was worth $2 million or anywhere near $2 million, okay? But as a contestant on a show where someone's marrying you sight unseen and you're a multimillionaire, I feel like $2 million is a great example of like, man, I mean, letter of the law, spirit of the law, because just barely makes it, but uh, just barely. <laughs> I like to, though... Uh, it was harshly condemned as exploitive and denounced by the National Organization for Women and the Media Research Center. I'm guessing those two don't often agree on things. But, um, whatever, you know. Um, also, Rockwell toured the country on a comedy tour he called the Annulment Tour, and he later appeared as a presenter in several aviation computer-based training CD-ROM courses. <laughs> sure. Like, how does, how do people even know that? But yeah, I like, I like that the, uh, you know, this is like National Organization for Women is like, this is a uh, exploitive. And I, and this is, so this is February 15th, 2000. And so, you know, to that organization, I'm like, well, I, I, I got bad news for you about the future, ladies. <laughs> if you didn't like that. Just you wait. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Uh, if you want to hear some excerpts from one of the worst books ever written, uh, subscribe to Patreon. We've got episodes up there going back a few years now. And when you're subscribed, you get access to all that. So, you know, I, I can't really promote it any higher than that. Other than saying, like, you could sign up for a month and then exploit that month to get everything you want. 